Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Uh, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then you I might. did come up with uh, Nick Mason's all sort of secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. goes up to 1972 with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hello, Gary. Hello, Guy. Happy New Year. That Happy New Year to you. What did you do? Uh, I did nothing on, on New Year's Eve. We did some tidying up at the house. I'm a bit of a... Georgie and I are both curmudgeons when it comes to New Year. And you're, about, bothered. you're about to become a tour manager as well, aren't you? I'm about to become a tour manager. I had a birthday... Oh, that was God. very nice. Do you know what, Guy? I am so sorry. Because your birthday, unfortunately, has been crammed in to this post-Christmas it's the New worst, Year. It's the worst possible. It always has been. That's why I always got joint Christmas and birthday presents. There's no point thinking about a party. No one wants to know. Yeah. It's two days after New Year. Yeah. Everyone's just done. So like the Queen did, you know, you should really have a summer one, shouldn't you? Did, you, did your an parents official, used I should to have do an that? official birthday, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But happy birthday to you as well. Um, Thank you. And um, so the great Don Black, lyricist extraordinaire, is on 85 years old and still working like a demon. Yeah, it's amazing. He never stops. And an amazing catalogue of of stuff. But And it's also big time. It's, it's that movie world, you know, movie and theatre, of course, which yeah. we love. Yeah. Uh, but it, and, and it's just that thing of nothing, nothing's really a pun, is it? You're there. You're, you're kind of already... At the Ritz. Well, he, yeah. I mean, five <laughs> James Bond uh, theme tunes. I mean, you know, there's Thunderball, Diamonds Are Forever, Man With A Golden Gun, Tomorrow Never Dies. Uh, there's another one, The World Is Not Enough. Uh, and then Born Free, of course, which we all sort of grew up on. Come on, Bill. Come on, Bill. Go, Bill. Come on. <laughs> but then he has worked with, with, I mean, on the Italian job, with Quincy Jones. With Quincy Jones. I mean, who hasn't and, sung that on a football terrace? You know, self-preservation society. But yeah, because what's extraordinary actually is the cast list of people he's worked with. It, it, it's He was working with people at the end of their time and then he's working with people at the very beginning of their time. So he literally stretches back to like great Broadway writers of the 20s and yes, yes. through to Michael Jackson. Yeah, yeah it's quite... Michael Jackson and, and, and of late Van Morrison, he's been writing lyrics with. Uh, he's he's worked with Meatloaf. I mean, you know, this guy has really encompassed all these genres. So many. Let's get him on. Welcome to The Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. That's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it and doing this podcast. It, it's uh, it's fabulous. Well, I get the feeling that us three should go for a bite. That's what I think. I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah, get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Keep on rocking! Hello, lovely to see you, lovely to see you. I'm so sorry, Don, that I have not been a sod this year. Guy and I were on the road for 20 weeks. We did 90 shows across Europe and America. So 
it, we just got back before Christmas. It, it, it wasn't easy. No, it's one of those things. Don't be silly. But it, we missed you at the ladies' night. Oh, it it preyed how... on him, Don. It did prey on him. I know I've been Gary's guest at several of them, and I say because they are fabulous occasions. It, it was a good one. Explain what the sods are to our listeners. Well, it's a very frivolous uh, society. By that, I mean that it doesn't do anything. The idea is that songwriters can get together. There used to be a place many years ago called Timpan Alley in Denmark Street. And that was then in those days that you used to bump into John Barry or Lionel Bart or those people. And Mitch Murray, who is our, we call him the Sodfather, he... um, he started this organization with me and Jeff Stevens, who was a great songwriter from there's a kind of hush all over the world and and Roger Greenaway, all these wonderful people. And we thought we'd start a little club. And it's great because um, we all meet, you know, a couple of times a year and a ladies' night. And it's people I wouldn't meet, like I wouldn't have met you, and I wouldn't have met um a lot of the people that are there. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've had over the years, everyone really. Although this last couple of years, we've lost a lot of wonderful people. That's right. So it was a bit sad the other night. There was a whole list of people like Barry Mason and Herbie Kretzmer and Bill Martin mm. that are no longer with us. Yeah. But it's great. It's great to get together. I mean, I haven't, and we haven't been doing it for three years. Uh, so I haven't seen the sods myself for three years. Although I did say. In my introduction the other night, I have bumped into quite a few of them in Harley Street. (laughs) (laughs) It's the Society of Distinguished Songwriters. I think you're about our fourth or fifth even. We've Mm. had Mike Bad on the show, uh, Justin Hayward, uh, David Arnold, Tim Rice. Rice. I'm so sorry. You're down the list, aren't you, Don? Well, it should be in alphabetical order. What's the matter with you? (laughs) It's reverse alphabetical order. Oh, okay. (laughs) No, it's, it's a lovely thing to be part of. And did you meet David Arnold through the sods? Because, or were you working with David before? Um, I knew David contacted me when he was asked to do um, his first Bond film. Oh right, right, right. And then we got very, very friendly, and then I introduced him to. Yeah, it, it, that's true. But I introduced a lot of people: Gary Barlow, um, Steve Mack. Oh, a lot of them fade away because the reality of life. This is a dying uh, association because we're all old. We're of a particular generation. Uh, And so why would Ed Sheeran want to be a part of it, really? It's the same thing as the Water Rats. The Water Rats has been going, I don't know, hundreds of years. And all the big comedians, Bob Monkhouse, Les Dawson, Tommy Cooper, it was a great society. But someone asked uh, Michael McIntyre recently if he would like to be a water rat. And he said, well, no, only if Jimmy Carr's going to be there. Because it's the, the, the water rats now, it, it's a very sad, everyone's gone. Right, right. And the new generation of comedians haven't got that same fire in their belly for this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. But you can, this comes from a generation, doesn't it, when you, you songwriters didn't perform weren't singers and singers didn't write songs and now a song is written by 10 or 12 people because it's you know because it's the only money to be divvied up isn't it so you have the person well it's on it's unrecognizable to the business that, that i came into as it is today i mean to show you how far back i go i remember when it only took two people to write a song <laughs> Uh, yes, yes, of course. Uh, if it, uh, now you have about twenty people on the on on, on the uh, on the list, don't you? Of, of all well, yeah, and rights. they're not so, they're not listed as songwriters. They're people who do a bit of the melody, of beats, I don't know, various production things. They're not like music lyrics. No, I, but I think it's more because that's the only money there is. So is from the writing, so that everyone has to yes. be put in on that. It's it's a it's a kind of. Um, necessity more than anything. <laughs> where do you think that divide, where do you think that came from, where where there was a musician who didn't write lyrics and a lyricist who didn't write music? Because uh, there seems to be quite a tradition of that 
on the great American songbook and in Hollywood um, and in Broadway. Uh, Broadway is different, but I think, and I could be so wrong here, but as you're asking me, I'll give you my <laughs> my theory on it. I think it all started with the Beatles because the Beatles wrote mm. their own songs. And before you look round, it seems in a twinkling of an eye, a record company said to uh, artists, can you write? Because it's a it was a big thing for them to find songs for their bands and stuff like that. It started with that, and it just I mean everyone writes songs today. Yeah. Every waiter writes songs. I, the smartest thing I've ever done in my career, I think, was sticking to lyrics. I only write lyrics. I've never tried to. I'm, I'm sure I could sit down at a piano and come up with a an inadequate tune, but I'm sure I could do that. But I've always found very early on in my life that there was a shortage of lyric writers. When I started as a song plugger in Denmark Street, everyone was looking for, there were great themes from Italy and France coming written by great people, big hits. And they thought, who's gonna do the English lyric? And there was a man, one man really called Norman Ewell who uh, wrote the EMI, and he wrote big songs like Portrait of My Love, more, you know, more than the greatest love the world, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. He was in demand, and when you couldn't get Norman, people scratched their heads, you know. And uh, I love, I've always loved lyrics. I mean, I've been brought up with lyrics, and my, you know, I never thought of anything else but Cole Porter and Irving Berlin and all those people. It's just, that's how, how it was. So I had a go at it and uh, nothing happened. You know, I wrote a few B-sides as you do starting out until I met the wonderful Matt Monroe. Ah, uh, yes. And uh, Matt Monroe and I became so close. And he finally got a record contract and a deal. And I wrote this song called Walk Away. And it was a top five single. and. From that day on, I really took it. I was in demand a bit because yeah. now there were two lyric writers. <laughs> and um, so, and then also there were three of us. There was Matt Monroe, John Barry and me. We used to meet all the time in Denmark Street. Now I used to have tea with John Barry every morning and, and he would rave about um, Stan Kenton. And Miles Davis and all this stuff, and I'm trying, and I'm t talking to him about Oscar Hammerstein and Larry Hart, <laughs> and, and it was just giggles. But that's how we all started. And then when he heard "Walk Away," he said, "That is a fantastic song." It became his favourite song. The song is about an, an elderly man, well, not an elderly man, an older man and a young girl, something John could relate to, <laughs> and. Uh, then he said to me one day in that lovely Yorkshire accent of his, do you fancy having a go at Thunderball? I said, what's that? He said, it's a thing I've been asked to do, a James Bond thing, Thunderball. And anyway, I did that for Tom Jones and I could go on for hours. Oh, yeah. Well, we, 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 no, we, you we, can't yeah. just pass that. No, you can't pass okay. that, Tom. Because it's a brilliant yeah. thing of, of – because uh, you in, in your book, you talk about it fantastically, this idea of just a, what is a thunderball. So you just have to kind of write out this Well, the, fir the, first thing, no, the first thing I did was look it up in a dictionary. What is a thunderball? And it wasn't in the dictionary. Yeah, it's before the lottery, isn't it, this – <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's right. And even Michael Michael Ball does a thing on his program as well in the right, on Sunday mornings about Thunderbolt. And um, so I thought, well, what can it be about? And then he told me John James Bond is this, and he's brave, and he's a hero. So I just wrote, literally wrote down in twenty minutes. He always runs while others walk. He acts while other men just talk. He looks at this world and wants it all, so he strikes like Thunderball. Do you know, John, when you just did that, my <clears throat> life would be very different if Thunderball wasn't in it. it it's it's part of <laughs> it's part of what I've inherited, and right? That, and that's that's what great lyrics do, don't they? They they give you a cultural foundation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, they do. Yes, they do. Um, I'm not sure they do so much today. Today, I think they talk more about great records. 
not so much great songs or great lyrics. But I don't mean that in any kind of cynical way. It's just a fact of life. In those days, people wanted story songs, songs that said something. And, and that's why lyrics that were polished and crafted were in demand. And that's the stuff I loved. And, and I think that's somehow it worked for me. And, but because from then, from sorry, from then, John Barry and I were we were really joined at the hip. I mean, I did so many songs. We done. I think I, I think I did. Man, forty or fifty songs with uh, John Barry, maybe more. Many I, films. I, I still, so I know Guy was about to ask a question, but I'd still like to be in that room. I want you to tell us how that song was first played to you. What research you done? Did you read? Did you read the book? Okay, I'll tell you. I hate to prick your balloon, but that's why it's very hard to interview a songwriter or not songwriter like me, because this is how I work, and it's so simple. It sounds so simple. So John Barry says it goes like this, and he sit down at the piano and fumble about with it take three attempts at it, because he wasn't very good at the piano. He was very good at trumpet. Wow. But um, and he, I said, OK, put it on a cassette. And I, he played a tune and I, da, 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 da. And I'm thinking, OK, well, I'm walking around a park or staring out of a window, and I wrote. He wrote. Now, that is the end of the anecdote. Now, you can, you can punch it up a lot. You can say... <laughs> Yeah, I went to the studio with Tom Jones. They, they helped a lot knowing that Tom Jones, we all wanted Tom to sing it. Well, he's very masculine, Tom Jones, that voice of steel. And that's that's what you wanted for it. And uh, it, it was, that's all there is to it. I, as I say, I, people say, did he faint on the last note? Well, he did. He did on that he last did. note, and he strikes like thunderbolt, whatever that note is. Um, I think it's a B flat from memory. Not that I know about these things, but I remember someone saying to me, "It was a B flat," and he it wasn't really a faint. It was more of a head rush, you know, that he went all wobbly. But John Barry loved that. It was the first take, so he wow. didn't have to repeat it. I saw him recently, Tom. I said, Tommy, you're still singing Thunderbolt. He said, yes, but I've lowered the key. But, but you know I've, what? I've got, Not... no, I've got to jump Sorry. in with something here because yes. I heard this story years ago not about Thunderbolt. Jimmy Page told me the same story about Goldfinger. He said he was on the session. Shirley Bassey came in and they hadn't been told and she sang the last note and wasn't told when to stop. And she just sang until she fell over. Well, I'm sure that's right. <laughs> I'm sure that's right, yeah. Well, I had another with Shirley Bassey as well. It was a very intro. I know I'm jumping around, but when I did Diamonds of Forever with Shirley Bassey, she said, how do I do this? You know, what is it? What's my motivation? And what? And John Barry said, just think of a diamond as a penis. <laughs> and, uh, she, and then he said, she sang it with such conviction. <laughs> <laughs> but also, that is a great example of such. That's technically such a beautifully crafted lyric, Don. That I mean, that really does hark back to to the greats that you talk about. You know, that just that right. tidiness of rhyme and everything. So yeah, yeah. Well, it's uh, Stephen Sondheim. Yeah, said uh, that writing lyrics, and he's so good. He's in two words he described it as agonising fun. <laughs> and it's so right. It's like doing a crossword, right? Lyrics, and it's agonising. You know, getting a lyric right is, but it's fun. Uh, it just sort of sums up. I once compared it with doing your own root canal work. <laughs> <laughs> but are you into this very musical theatre sort of idea? And I, I get it. Where, where you, you, you don't sing two notes for one syllable. Well, yeah, we could do three days talking about this. I mean, yeah. I always think, you know, why sing sing six notes when one will do? But that's how it is these days. And and you learn to live with it and you don't feel bitter about it. But, you know, the thing I find um, about the world today, as opposed to the world I was born in, is that the singers today have very little identity. Mm -hmm. You cannot 
you can close your eyes and you oh, clearly the girl singers it, it could be anyone they may they all have great voices they all have but what they don't have is identity now in my time um you could hear two notes from Nat King Cole, Dean Marden, Frank Sinatra, Sarah Vaughan, Ella Fitzgerald. You immediately you spot them. You know who it is. Oh, that's Nat King Cole. Today you don't. We can't include Amy Winehouse in that though, can we? No, no, you can't include everyone. Obviously, you can't include everyone. But I know what you're but, saying, Don. Yeah. You know Don, what I'm saying. And I don't want to mention them, but there's so many people, they say, oh, she's a great singer, she's a great singer. But if you close your eyes, you will not guess who it is singing, although it's good. But you, the character doesn't, because it's not character for. Now, I must say, Gary, I'm not giving it. I can always tell it's your voice. You, you are lucky. No, but it's just that it's just that you are blessed with that. I mean, it comes, John Barry used to say, God gives you that. That was one of his phrases. And it's true. Well, I think um, I think the processing and the auto tuning and all of that, obviously, and there's a lot of you know. I think X Factor has been to blame X Factor is to blame for it. It's this post Mariah Carey world where everyone yes. thinks that it's that gymnastics equals sort of talent. Mm. Right. Mm. Going back to Tom Jones, I actually was going to say that my friend Toby Chapman, the keyboard player, played, yes. key, played keyboards uh, quite a, uh, before. Tom lowered the note for a long time with Tom. And at the end of Thunderball, he, Tom would always go over to, to, to Toby and went, I did it again. You know, <laughs> because he was dreading that note every, uh, every time. Well, it's the same. I tell you who worse than that is Michael Ball singing Love Changes Everything. Because that last note is an unbelievably high note. And he's always dreading it. I said, I told him what to do. I said, there is a way that artists do this in America, particularly. He said, how do you, what, what do I do? And I said, you sing it, you do this. At the very end, love will never, ever, ever be the, good night, God bless. <laughs> and walk off. And he fell about, and he has done that a few times. Do, do you think composers put those notes in on purpose? Like if they know who's going to be singing the song? <laughs> well, I think so. Andrew Lloyd Webber does. He, he likes to stretch them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Do you, I mean, but with your writing, doc, so I was thinking. Here's the thing, because like when you start things like, um, you know, your first songs, when you, writing a song is very different to writing a song to a brief. Do you find I me? Mean, because like again, something that's amazing of yours is that you write songs for films where you haven't seen the film or anything. You go, what's it about? Someone goes, it's a lion. And, you know, he was born free. And then you go and write born free and, and you manage That's to great. say exactly what it is. But is it that thing of having just having a brief, no matter how flimsy, just makes it all fall? I, I, do, I do like it. I do. It's worked for me. Whenever I've done anything that's worked, I've always said to the director, what's it about? In a sentence. Yeah. And I remember one in particular with To Serve With Love. And uh, James Clavell, the director, he said he wanted the song written first because it was very important. The Sydney Poitier film, you may remember. Yeah, that's fantastic. Big hit, a big hit for Lulu in America. And he said, it's about this black uh, teacher, Sydney Poitier, he goes to an East End school and they give him such a hard time. But at the end of it, they love him. That's, that's enough. Thank you very much. I then went to my kitchen. I was living in Mill Hill. And I wrote this thing, you know... Um, well, wherever it goes, those schoolgirl days of telling tales and biting nails are gone. Uh, anyway, it goes on to Sir with Love. There's a line in it that is always quoted. People say it's one of the best lines I've ever written. And people say it to me often. And it's the line in that song which uh, goes, um, how do you thank someone who has taken you from crayons to perfume? It isn't easy, but I'll try. And it goes on about that. And that was just sitting in my house, in my kitchen in, in Mill Hill. Uh, these things take on a different size if they work. I mean, I'm sure Gary is with you and people say, how did you write that barricades thing? Now, you might have a long story to say about that, but you might just say, well, it just came to me and... Uh, I had a good, well, look, Paul McCartney, when they asked him, how did he write yeah. yesterday? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, I had a good day at the office. 
Yeah, but actually, that's an interesting uh, point to bring up because he he obviously talks about singing scrambled eggs to this. Yes, yes. Do do songwriters sometimes confuse you or the the musical side of the songwriter partnership when they sing gibberish to you, or are they giving you ideas of of how they hear the the, the vowel sounds or whatever it might be? Well, it's it's funny enough, you know. It, it I don't like them to to uh, ad-lib words, really, because it's off-putting. I just like the melody very clearly played. Right. Not too em much embellishment on it. I just, how, all I want to know is how does it go? That's what I was going to call my book, How Does It Go? Because that's, you know, I called it the sanest guy in the room yeah. because I'm often called that. But, um, you know, and I've worked with many, many collaborators, as you may have checked Oh, you, uh, you but, and people say that, <laughs> people say to me, "How could you? Uh, what's it like working with Quincy Jones as opposed to uh, Henry Mancini?" And the list goes on. Oh man! And my answer is always the same: they are all the same at the piano. It's very different when Andrew Lloyd Webber gets up from the piano, and Quincy gets up. They're, that's when they're people. But at the piano, when you're trying to put a song together, we're all on the same page. How do we do it? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, um, yeah. because I've worked with a lot of people who are very different, but uh... I just want to hold you up because we will talk about Quincy, obviously. But going back to 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 you talking about being in a house and then writing a lyric, I think you mentioned something about writing uh, the lyrics uh, for, for with David Arnold, but writing your lyric for Tomorrow Never Dies. I think it ends up being called Surrendered, does it not? I, I get confused about that title. That's right. Yes, and, that's and right. How you couldn't think of a line coming after Tomorrow Never Dies. Well, the thing is about Tomorrow Never Dies is we're supposed to have the title song, the main song, Tomorrow Never Dies, and we wrote it. And um, I'm, I think I might be getting confused with The World Is Not Enough, actually, as far as those lyrics okay. are concerned. No, but, okay, but... Yeah, good. Oh, no, that's another story. But on Tomorrow Never Dies, Cheryl Crow was very, very hot, and they, they wanted her to do it, and she insisted on writing her own song. So they put the David Arnold song with me at the end titles and KD Lang sang it. But it couldn't be called Tomorrow Never Dies. So I called it Surrender. But it just had to come up with a different title. But The World Is Not Enough. Well, that wasn't it. I found that difficult to write. I mean, it, it sounded like a great title, an intriguing title. And I thought, what's the next line? And... Um, I had no idea, really. I'm walking around. I, say, oh, I know I'll get it because I'm confident I'll get it. But I know it's a lot of uh, digging around in my mind. And then Shirley, my my wife, shouted out, Don, you'll never believe it. Uh, she opened the post and she said, you've got an OBE. So I said, what? She said, I've just opened the post. You've got an OBE. And I said, well, it's a good start. <laughs> as if to say it's not a knighthood but it's, that's what I meant I said well it's I don't thought the word is not enough but it's a perfect way to start uh, oh I thought yeah yeah yeah. that's right yeah, the classic was born <laughs> brilliant oh, so, yeah. cause if, yeah. if you're having trouble writing the next line Gary's got a good workaround for that haven't you Gary is he? <laughs> no, it's he's, he's joking. It's from the song True. Why do I find it yeah. hard to write the next line when I want the truth to be said is the lyric that I write. Oh, I yeah, just yeah. Just say, right. why, do, why do I find it hard to write the next line? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, someone, <laughs> someone, someone who wrote, uh, I think wrote a Bond theme was, was Lionel Bart, right? I mean, yeah, from uh, Russia With Love. From Russia With Love. Um, and Lionel's someone that I know is dear to, to, to Guy's heart. And uh, yeah. I just wanted to talk about Lionel for a bit. I don't know if because Lionel, I Lionel, I love Lionel Bart. I mean, Don, can I, I miss just him. can I just interject here? Because I don't know if you know that my dad was Lionel's original writing partner. Yes, I do. I didn't oh, okay. know it was your dad. Yeah. What was his What was his first name? Mike. Mike Pratt. Mike. Yeah. Yes, I did know. Uh, did you know him well? You I got to know Lionel really well at the end. It was really, really nice. Um, I think it was like sort of closure for him. He was just a, he was, he was just, he was just the most wonderful, wonderful man. Yeah. And deserved to be much more heralded than he has been. I mean, he was our no coward. He was, he was everything. Very sad. A joy to be with. Um, yeah. 
And mean, couldn't have, couldn't have been more successful. But he ended up a bit of a sad character. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, he was so colourful. The way he when you saw him, he would be wearing like a I don't know Panama hat or dressed like a Mississippi gambler or something. <laughs> he always looked. Uh, yeah. Looked great, and I love the way he spoke. Hello, my love. All yeah. right, all right, darling. The quiet. Yeah, it's so warm, you know. But also, there's an interesting thing about Lionel because you talk about, you know, you you are a lyricist. You just, you know, define yourself as a lyricist, yeah. and you you don't play an instrument, and you know, or I don't know, not too right, right. Yeah, and whereas Lionel was the same. You think he didn't play an instrument, and he couldn't read or write music. But he could write whole songs. He could somehow relay whole songs to people. Yeah, I think he'd sing the melody, yeah. wouldn't yeah. he? And, and a pianist it, would would work out what chords that that. Yeah, that, that that happens a lot. It, it isn't unique, right? Uh, and Leslie Brickers comes to mind. Ah, Leslie, uh, Leslie Brickers uh, has written many songs, the words and music, and he had um, Ian Fraser was his right. musical director, and he used to play it on a whistle or something. You know, he, he, he took it all down. And uh, it worked for Leslie, it worked for Lionel's. Um, I'm sure there's more people than that, I mean, who need someone to take it down. I mean, Jeff Stevens, who I've written with many times, he wrote Winchester Cathedral and, I don't know, The Crying Game, and many, yes. many. Yes. He, writing a song with him was absolutely painful. It was a joy, a joy, agonising fun again. But he he couldn't find the chord. And we'd get someone over who could do everything, and he'd say, that's not it. And he must have said, that's not it so many times. No. He said, well, what is it, that? No. And it just, and I thought, I'm just waiting there. Try an augmented. Yeah. Try a demented D. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. G, G demolished. Yeah. And then all of a sudden he said, that's it, that's it. And he was right. He was right. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You'll be glad to hear this. My um, my 10-year-old... Uh, ask for a record player, a vinyl record player for Christmas. Right. Uh, and, and and he listed, he wrote down all the albums he wanted. Now, they're a little bit instrumental for your liking, but what? they are in the right time. He, he Glenn Miller, he's obsessed with. Okay. Uh, and, and, and Herb Output, he's obsessed with and these were the two albums and he wanted joe loss and he would he would you know he's he's got he's completely got his head in that period but the song that really turned him on was this guy's in love with you and he he gets in my car my 10 year old every time i take him anywhere and that's the first song he puts on he loves it and that's so there's something about that period isn't there but that's burt Bacharach, obviously and and how david who wrote those lyrics but I'm pleased you mentioned Hal David because when you hear these things on the radio a lot, they say it about Burt Bacharach's The Guy's in Love With You. They often leave out Hal David. That's right, yeah. Yeah. They do, and that happens a lot with lyric writers. And I used to be very annoyed at Burt Bacharach because I used to see him uh, in concert, and he never mentioned Hal David, which I thought was unforgivable. Mm. I'm pleased to say he does now, but when he started, it was... And it was the same with Neil Sedaka. You go and see Neil Sedaka, and he sings and sings. 
He never mentions Howie Greenfield, who wrote all those great lyrics. Mm. It's very, very upsetting. Henry Mancini's Moon River, No Johnny Mercer. Mm. The list goes on. It, it does. It never bothered me because you I, don't I'm feel quite like happy. a second-class citizen. No, I, I don't. I just I I've always treasured my anonymity in a way. You know, I mean, you want to walk down the street with Andrew Lloyd Webber, you can't go very far. Um, and myself, people people do know me. You know, obviously, go. You know, people. The odd person goes, "Oh, you! I know you. You Cabby. wrote that." But it isn't black mania, <laughs> and, and I like and I like that. I Talking like... of which, weren't you receiving some weird emails from some white supremacists? Um, oh, that's, I mean, that's a, a funny story. What is it's it? A great, well, it's a great story. Um, yeah, I wrote about it in my book. There's another guy called Don Black, and he's a white supremacist, a very famous one. He was a wizard of one time of it and all. And uh, my son Grant said to me, because I keep getting these uh, Google alerts. You know, you <laughs> God, Google, yeah. Don Black, Don Black is Don Black. And it's all this, like, Don Black is, uh, there's another meeting in the woods or something. <laughs> 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 Not that, but something like that. And, you know, big meeting of the clan together. And Grant, my son, said to me, I wonder if he gets any inquiries for Tell Me on a Sunday. <laughs> Which is an earlier piece I did. <laughs> oh, that's While we're on your son, I just sort of quick because there's actually something he once said to me years ago, which is I always thought was one of the funniest things I've ever heard, and it's already been quoted on this podcast once before. Which is where he once said to me, "I've just invented a new genre of music." I said, "What's that?" He said, "It's called it's reverse country." So what's that? He said, "You get the car back, you get the kids back, you get oh, yeah, the house yeah, back." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very funny. Yeah. <laughs> Quincy Jones. I mean, listen, the Italian Job is one of oh, the yeah, great come movies. On. Come on, and and I I still can't believe that song you wrote. It's it's so genius. That's all Cockney rhyming slang, and the fact yeah. that I still. Si- I think there again, I think the lyricist gets an injustice because it says music by Quincy Jones at the beginning of the film. I'm not sure it says music by where your name gets mentioned big enough because coming together with Quincy Jones to write a, a, a song about with, 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 with Cockney rhyming slagging, it, it couldn't have been a stranger marriage. Yeah. Well, the funniest what was, thing what about was that, that lunch that brought that up? Well, the, the, he loved he loved uh, that he, he loved you know apples and pears. He said, "What is that all about?" And it was you know, and but someone once said to him, "Did you uh, write that lyric, Self Preservation Society?" I thought it's the most stupidest question to think he could write all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's impossible. Um, I loved working with him. He's the most wonderful man. You may have come across him, but he's the most gentleman. He, mm-hmm. He's very cool. He's got a mantra. I th- well, that's, that's Descartes, he, isn't it? I think, therefore, I am. Yes. Cartesian. Yeah, I think it is. That is Descartes. Cartesian yeah. Quincy. Yeah, but um, when it came but to that work... That could have been an instrumental album, couldn't it? <laughs> Cartesian <laughs> yeah, yeah. Quincy. <laughs> but when it, when it came to writing with him, it was not easy. It really wasn't easy to write a ballad with him. And we wrote on days like these with him. And uh, do you want me to talk about that for a yeah, minute? Yes, please. Yeah, please. Not only because I sat down with Quincy in his apartment in Marble Arch. And the brief was to write um, a lovely Italian t- summery kind of song like Volare. There was a song called Prima Cherry Two. There was a lot of yeah. Italian things floating around, lovely yeah. songs. So anyway, he he is such a jazz guy. He's back. You look at his background, yeah, yeah. you know. But Billy Holiday and you know everybody, Ella, Sarah, Sinatra, and we wanted a simple song. So I said, I'll leave it with you for a bit. I'll go over the park. Well, I went away for a few hours. Came back, nothing. <laughs> it's a tough one. It's a tough one. He said, no. I said, it's not a tough one. I said, forget all those cool chords, you know, just a nice little tune, Quincy. Anyway, again, came back an hour later. Then I gave him a title. I said, Let me, I'll give you on days like these, and then we can talk about how beautiful it all is. 
I said, now I'll leave you with it. And I came back and he'd done two notes on days and left it like that. So <laughs> oh he said, God. what do you think of this? So <laughs> it, it was as slow as this. And I said, well, it's a star, I'll leave it with you. And I, the next day he came in and he wrote this lovely melody. He just cleared his head of everything. And it's a lovely, lovely tune that he wrote there. Yeah, yeah. And Matt Monroe sang it beautifully, as he does sing everything beautifully. Can we just, do we just dwell a little bit on Matt Monroe? Because I had a yes. re-listen you, you can do the whole programme on and, Matt Monroe. And, well. and, and I think a man that's sort of faded from people's memories a little, but what a voice. Yeah, what a voice. Well, he, he's, he's definitely, uh, you know, I do a lot of radio. And every time I do a radio show, I was on Radio 2 for eight years doing a late night show. Yeah, why aren't you still there? That was a great I'm show. I'm now on radio. Now on uh, Radio London. I start on Sunday a new series oh, at five o'clock. If anyone's listening fantastic. to this, and you can listen to that on BBC Sounds on anyway and all that stuff. Yeah, can't yeah. You? yeah if exactly. you don't live in London, right? But uh, Matt was uh, was without doubt the greatest singer. What what was the question on this? What are you just talking about? <laughs> just Matt Matt Rowe. Yeah, just, yeah. just Matt generally. Because you managed, yeah. you managed him, didn't you? I managed him for over 20 years. He was really my, my best friend. But people like Tony Bennett and Frank Sinatra, Steve Lawrence, Matt was their idol. He, I mean, he had fan letters from Sinatra and Tony Bennett. They loved him. They really adored him. Matt was a bus driver when I met him. He was always a bus driver to me in the way he spoke to people. He was just normal. One of my favourite stories First of please. Man, which, I've got dozens of them, you can imagine, I've got hundreds of them. But I used to say to him as his manager when he played Talk of the Town, I would say to him, Matt, you know who's in tonight, don't you? And he'd say, no, son. He'd say, no, son, who's in? Who's in? Sammy Davis Jr. and Liberace. Now, I remember this because they were in that night. I said, and, you know, I'm sure they'll want to come back and say hello afterwards, you know, because that's what they do. He said, yeah, yeah, of course, son. He said, but don't forget we're having a ruby after. <laughs> we're having a curry. I said, say, get rid of them quickly. <laughs> you know, and that's how it, that's how he was. No, he wasn't being rude. Obviously, Sammy Davis, fantastic. Yeah. But then he looked at me and say, yeah, I know. Yeah, I know, Matt, you, you, you want the curry, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there's, uh, there's an interesting development, isn't there, in, in, in te where technology spurs on uh, musical changes? Because I, I, I read, you know, obviously in the early days, there'd be Al Jolson-type singers who had to sing to the gallery, and when they s recorded, they had to sing into this big horn that went straight onto, scratched onto uh, the record. Yeah. And then they invented the ribbon microphone and the crooner existed and this guy could have a big band playing behind him and he could just sing close to the mic and apparently it was absolutely appalling because all these men would be horrified at the idea of these crooners were in their living room on the radio seducing their wives but yes. and, and yes. these guys like frank and and matt and everyone they were born yes they were born and uh every time i hear matt's voice it's just for someone who came from Shoreditch, I, I used to say that uh, if David Evan would sing, he'd sing like Matt Monroe. <laughs> there, was such a, yeah. there was an elegance. There was such a classy elegance yeah. uh, about his voice. But, you know, I, I, I don't always work with those people who are middle of the road. I've been recently, I've spent a lot of time working with Van Morris. Yes, yes. Which is an entirely different vibe. Um how is that? But I, I am, you know, I am uh, more. I am more comfortable sitting down with a, a David Arnold who sits down and plays. Well, I was a said because Van writes so much of his own stuff. What's that? It's, well, it, oh, he does. Uh, yeah. Well, he he said to me one day, uh, uh, "Got any lyrics for me? You got any lyrics? I'm all lyriced out." Is how he put it. Uh. And I said. Uh, I didn't know much about him, I'll be very... I mean, I knew Moondance and Brown-Eyed Girl, and obviously I know Van Morrison. But I soaked myself up with him for a few days and uh, listened to all that mystic stuff that he does. And, um, and the next time I saw him, I gave him three lyrics, which he took, didn't look at them, scrunched them up, 
and put them in his pocket because he's a very strange guy. You know, I don't know if you've come across it. Yeah. And then we had a lovely lunch and we had a lot of laughs. A lot of people say he's the grumpiest man in the yeah. business. But I, I found him a joy to be with. Anyway, the next time I saw him, I, had be, I have lunch with him regularly. And then he said to me, you got any lyrics for me? I said, well, I gave you three lyrics last time. Didn't you like any of them? He said, yeah, I recorded them. I said, you recorded them? He said, yeah. I said, well, don't you think I'd like to hear them? You know, this is the kind of guy he is. Oh, my God. I've now done 12 songs with, with him. And every time I give him a lyric, he just takes it. He doesn't look at it and say, oh, I like this. Like you didn't think it would do normal behaviour, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or it's not me, or oh, right, let me play with. He just takes it and puts it in his pocket, and then I, yes, that's a look at it quietly. Uh, so it's not quite like the Jewish mother who gives her son two shirts for his birthday, and then he comes out wearing one, and she says, "What, you don't like the other one?" No, that's a, very, <laughs> very similar. Very similar. <laughs> and Michael Jackson, this is when you said scrunched so, up, scrunched him up, and, and, and as long as he, as long as he didn't put him in the bin, that was the only. No, no, <laughs> that's no, what no. I was worried about. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, no, and, no. go on, guy. No, no, I was just, no, I was just preempting what you, what you were going to say, which is uh, Michael Jackson, who you had a you know long relationship with. I mean, Incredible. It was very much in the beginning. Was that his, his first solo hit, wasn't it, Ben? It was the first one, yeah, yeah solo hit. Mm-hmm. And thankfully it went to number one in America. That was, there was, you know, luck plays a very big part. If there's any songwriters listening to this, there's no question about it. I mean, very lucky. You know, diamonds are forever. Harry Saltzman, one of the producers, thought it was terrible. He said, how can you say touch it, stroke it and undress it? He said, it's filthy. That was that. Now, his partner, Cubby Broccoli, loved it. That went in and that's good. Born Free, um, Carl Foreman didn't like it. He said he thought the tune was syrupy and he thought my lyric was a social comment Uh. and he he wanted it more about lions and cages and stuff it's, like that. It's too liberal. However, cutting a long story short, it went through. Yeah, but hang on a minute, because there is an interesting story in that, because the first print of Born Free, the movie, didn't yeah. include the song. It's not in it. That's right, it wasn't in it, but um, Roger Williams and his choir recorded it, and it went to the number one or two in America. And then the publisher said, you know what, if we can get this in every print, it would be eligible for an Academy Award. And so they... They called it all the prints back. And yes, that's exactly right. But yeah, because wasn't there like a sort of multi-ethnic performance of it? Was that it? You don't work for the forensic department, do you? <laughs> yeah, so, no, VAT, VAT. I, I, but, so, <laughs> no, but, but the funny thing is, it kind of became a hit because it was exactly, it became exactly the sort of social commentary that Carl Foreman was worried about. Yes, it, it's take, it taken on a hell of a size, that thing. They, different days they were. When that won the Oscar, uh, you know, within that year, there were 600 people recorded it. 600 what? people recorded what? it. Exactly. Yeah, right. You know, the people like Johnny Mathis, Andy Williams, uh, this it, orchestra, yeah. that orchestra, whatever. Now, the reason I mention it is when Tim Rice won a little while ago for Can You Feel the Love Tonight from The Lion King, I think it was. No one recorded it. <laughs> uh, Elton, Elton, Elton John recorded it, and they won an Oscar and everything. Else. But those days are gone of people yeah. covering. Don, you've got to get, get let go of the competition with Tim, please. You know, <laughs> it's going it's it's to eat you up. No, no, no. It's just a different world. He's done quite well. He's done. But he's, <laughs> he's, he's, he's done, done all right. You've all, you it? all, everyone's done all right. It's fine. Yeah. What was it like as a young man, though, sitting in that Academy Award? I mean, who else was there? There must have been some superstars in the room. This, this, this boy from London. Boy from Hackney, yeah. From Hackney. So, uh, yeah, um, well, you don't realise it at the time. You know, it's like uh, you winning an Ivor Novello Award or something else. You know, it's thrilling, it's lovely, but it's only lovely later on. Really, the night you're very tense. The thing I loved about that night, the memories that stayed with me, the people sitting behind me and stuff. You know, there was Ingrid Bergman, there was Spencer Tracy there that night, and Bob Hope. And I was sitting next to Burt Bacharach and Hal David because they were up for Alfie. They wrote oh, Alfie. Yeah. And they were my... And Jim Dale. I remember Jim Dale? He oh, had Georgie. 
from Georgie. Carry On Movies. That's what, yeah, 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 yeah. And he, Georgie. But all these girls, all these English girls, Georgie girl, Alfie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I thought, well, we don't have me. Yeah, I didn't think I'd win it. I just thought, isn't it unbelievable to be nominated? And Dean Martin presented that award, which is a hero of mine, Dean Martin. And uh, when they presented it, Matt Monroe didn't sing it. They had a multi-ethnic choir and they were black and they were all colours and various people from around the world singing Born Free. And you could feel that these were people with shackles on them. You know, you just felt they longed to be free. That was the feeling. And I thought then, you know, it might, it might. And then when Dean Martin said, and the winners are oh, John Barry and Don Blaine, ah, oh. oh, wow, wow, wow. <laughs> it was great. I still didn't realise my sister Nita uh, sent me a telegram. I think it must have been that day. But he said, the the placards that uh, East End Boy wins Oscar. It, it builds up. You see, it builds up like that. And when I went back to the hotel that night, which was the Continental on uh, Sunset Boulevard, all the staff were there applauding. The whole hotel stuff when I came in. And you know, oh my God. And then all the telegrams and the Columbia pictures, bottles of champagne, flowers. You know, it is. And for me, it was a career changing thing because I suddenly started writing with Elmer Bernstein wow. and Lalo Schifrin and all these incredible, and Hank Mancini, of course. Because I was in demand as a lyric writer there, and I, I did loads of films with lots of different people. And that they, they were the days when uh, songs were in films. Proper songs were over the titles. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, and I must have done, so, I did a lot with Elmer Bernstein. We, we, were, we had a big hit with True Grit. Which Glenn Campbell did from the John Wayne movie. Oh, your, I did a few your story about movies. your story about working on that is actually very funny. The title "True Grit." I mean, you've got to write. A, well, yeah. John Wayne said to me, "I said, uh, have you got any ideas?" So John, I remember sitting with John Wayne, whose hands were enormous. He said, I, "I don't care what you do with a song as long as you call it True Grit." I said, "Okay." Really? You had a publicist. That was it. Well, it publicizes the movie. It's a difficult. Yeah. It's a difficult word uh, phrase to put in a, a song, though, isn't it? Really, it is. I used to envy people like the Bergmans who had the way we were. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> great, great titles. Mm, mm, mm. You know, um, because you know things that rhyme with grit. I mean, aren't. I don't know what you're getting at. But, but, this, but we, we, I sort of slung you in a different direction, but we were leading up to you getting the opportunity to work with or Michael Jackson and how that... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Well, Michael Jackson, um, I was working with a man called Walter Sharp, who no one has heard of, but you should have done. Yeah. Um, and he's a man who did the first arrangement of White Christmas for Irving Berlin oh, yeah. wow. in a film called Holiday Inn. He also did, scored all the films Elvis Presley did and Martin and Lewis. And I worked with him on a, and he did Jacques Cousteau series. He was a wonderful man if you look him up. And anyway, I got very, very friendly. I did a musical with him called Maybe That's Your Problem which Elaine Page starred, and it's never in either of our CVs. <laughs> Elaine doesn't talk about it, and I don't talk. It's a wonderful story about it, though, really wonderful. It opened at the Roundhouse, and it came out at the same time as Portnoy's Complaint. So it was a bit suggestive, and it basically it was about a, a guy who suffers from premature ejaculation. That was the story. It's very funny, but very funny. And I, I used to say, ironically, the show didn't last long either. <laughs> um, anyway, that was Water Sharp. So nothing much happened with that musical. But then he called me one day and he said, um, I've been asked to do this film about a rat. I said, yeah. And he said, <laughs> it doesn't sound know, much better, really, does it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he said, well, you've written one about a lion. What difference is it? <laughs> so I said, well, how do you? I said, you know. I don't want to write about cheese and traps, you know, and um, nothing rhymes with rent a kill. I don't know. But if they show me a clip from the film 
And it's this boy who's in it, he's very ill. <clears throat> he's got leukemia. And a friendly rat comes in, a nice friendly rat. And he becomes very friendly with it. And he gets better. He's got a friend. <clears throat> so I said, well, I can certainly write a song about friendship. And I did. And then Michael Jackson came round and Walter played it. I talked, sang it a bit. And um, he cried. How old Michael was he cried. then? How old was he then? 14. Right. <clears throat> he said, uh, uh, later on in his autobiography, he said the best two lines of any song he's ever read is from that. His son, the two song his son. And it was, I used to say I and me, now it's us, now it's we. Mm. He loved that. Mm. Which is incredibly <clears throat> poignant, isn't it? Because that's, that's, that's clearly a lonely person. Yes. Isn't it? He used to come over to my place when I, I lived there for a year. I used to play pool with my sons, Grant and Clyde. And I got to know him very well. And he used to sing favourite songs of his. His favourite song at that time was Inchworm from uh, Hans Christian Andersen. Yeah, Danny oh, Danny Worm, Inchworm, Measuring the Marigold. And he was a big fan of Matt Monroe's as well. He liked Matt Monroe. It, it, it's a difficult story to explain, but Matt's musical director was a man called Johnny Spence. And Johnny Spence's son went to the same school as Michael Jackson in Los Angeles. So there was a Matt Monroe connection. You you, you worked with Scott Walker, didn't you, uh, on a, on a yes. track? It's absolutely stunning. Yes, it's been, song, yeah. only myself to, to blame, right? Yeah. Uh, what, yeah, what, was that, what was Scott like? Did you actually get to meet him, Don? Yeah, well, he's recorded a couple of songs of mine before that. A John Barry song I wrote called This Way Mary for Mary Queen of Scots. And a song I wrote uh, for uh, who was it? Uh, for Lulu, her follow-up to To Serve With Love in America, was called Best of Both Worlds. Scott recorded that. And it was David Arnold's ambition to get him to sing a song. Well, of course, he was a recluse. You know, he was so difficult to get hold of. He said no to everything. But he liked the song. We sent him the song. He liked it, so, and he recorded it. Because David can do a demo. He can sing, can't he, David Arnold? Let me tell you, there is no one, no composer I've ever worked with in the world could sing like David Arnold. Now, I've said it from the day I met him, and I've said I will pay for you to do an album, just voice and piano, because it's a cross between Tony Bennett and Don McLean, and it's just a lovely, pure voice. And, and he, you know, it's a sods the other night, and, and, and every sods, he always just brings the house down with that gorgeous voice of his. Yeah. But he says, I don't look right to have a voice like this. It's coming out of the wrong mouth. <laughs> <laughs> go, back to, go back to that Scott Walker, though. I, 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 if anyone's not heard it, go, go and listen to Only Myself to Blame. It, Scott sings it brilliantly. There's also a great lyric there that I love, which is, there's no greater fool in the fool's hall of fame, and I've only myself to blame. Thank you. Yeah, that's David's favourite line. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Beautiful. Um, I guess we we should ask you what you're what, if you're doing uh, another musical because you don't stop, do you? Are you, are you well, I'm very pleased to say, at my ridiculous age, I'm busier than I've ever been. I have two shows opening in the West End in the next few months. We should go and name I've got, them. I've got Bonnie and Clyde, which opens at the Garrick Theatre, and it's taken eleven years to get there because I wrote it in, on broad, you know, for Broadway 11 years ago. And it's been very, very successful across America. It played at the Arts Club last year and got rave review. It's become a cult following, if you look up Bonnie and Clyde. And it sold out instantly. Anyway, it's, it's coming to the Garrick, and then I have uh, Aspects of Love, oh. again, with Michael Ball playing the older man. Uh, he played the young man before. And uh, with Jonathan Kent directing, I mean, so I've got, you know, I've got to say, because I'm very proud of this, I won an Oscar when I was 27, I'm now 84, oh. and I'm now 84 and I've got two shows opening in the West End, so I must have done something right. Incredible. That's brilliant. Guy what and about... I had a night out, didn't we, Guy? 
going to see Sunset Boulevard. We went to see Sunset Boulevard. That's right. When we were researching our musical, and it was fantastic. What that was actually a great piece. Where did you see Glenn Glenn Close? Glenn Close, yeah. Yeah. Great piece of work. Brilliant piece of work. Thank you very much. For some of the one reason that line that always stayed with me was that I'm a great believer in self denial. I don't know why there's something about that landed. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, That's right. Also, what about Billy? Yes. Which is my missus' favourite musical of all time. Yes, it's one of my favourite things. Uh, You did that with John Barry, right? With with John Barry. Did it with John Barry. Ian Lafrenet and Dick Clement. That's right. It was based on Billy Liar. Billy Liar, yeah. And. Looking back, because I did it when I was very young, in 1974 it opened, and it sold out for two years. It was, or more, three years. It was huge hit with Michael Crawford. And I looked at it again recently because a lot of people are interested in bringing it back. Oh. And I was amazed how good it was. I mean, I'm old enough to say this, and you know I don't mean it in any ego way, in an egotistical way. I was amazed how good it was because I, I was so young doing it. And John and I did a great job of it, and, but we haven't looked at it for 40 years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you look at something you wrote many years ago and you like it still, it's a lovely, satisfying <laughs> feeling. Talking of which, is there a favourite of all your musical, lyrical children? Not really. I am very fond of Tell Me On A Sunday. It's the first thing I did with Andrew Lloyd Webber. It was just me and him around a piano, but without directors or choreographers. It's very something about just two people in a room doing it. It galvanizes it. But I love Sunset Boulevard because it of the story it tells. Mm. We can all relate to someone who's getting on in years, but will not let go, and still thinks it can all happen again. And I, it, it, it touches a nerve with with anyone in this business. Well, except you, because you're 84 and you've got two shows opening in the West End. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. There's only one Yeah, I know. People my age, of course, is, uh, you know, they retire. But the only reason I do it is I love it. I wouldn't do it if I didn't enjoy it. Charles Aznavour, the great French singer, Mm -hmm. composer, he said to me, a man will never grow old if he knows what he's doing tomorrow. And I thought that was a lovely phrase, Uh... and it's true. You know, I couldn't do nothing. I have to. It keeps me young. Don, I, I want to ask. I want to ask because I just want to mention Shirley because you know she was an amazing woman. I, I was lucky enough to know her a bit and meet her quite a few times. Your 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 wife, who sadly passed away. Um, have you found is writing lyrics different for you now? Hmm. Do, is, do you find her hmm. in more of them? Well. Let me tell you, a lot of people, a lot of men think they are married to the best woman in the world. And a lot of men are wrong because she was. And I wouldn't be where I am today. I'm not just saying it. There's nothing sentimental about it. She was such a supportive woman. Put me first. Loved my work. Made sure. I mean, I... She never was in a bad mood in 60 years of marriage unless I put her in one. She was a remarkable woman and she's still in me and my sons. And I wrote, the people who say to me, have you ever written a song for Shirley? And I say, yeah, all of them. Mm-hmm. Because that's how close we were. And then when I, the thing I, I miss so much about Shirley is when I finish a song these days, the first thing would always be, Shirley, come, is this any good or not? And I sing it, and she would close her eyes, sit as I'd play it and sing it to her. And, and you know, I'd play it, you know, I do this now with my sons, but when, you know, she would cry uh, if it was a sad song. Now, I remember playing her as if we never said goodbye from Sunset Boulevard. And, I mean, you get, you know, it's, it's beyond... Uh, pleasure it's a, it's another level of everything um i'm very lucky that i had 60 years of the happiest marriage since i lost shirley i don't think i've met anyone who's had a 60 year marriage no. that's always been happy it 
it's very hard. I met many people who've had a good life with somebody, but they she was married, he was married, they've left and they're back again. But something that's lasted has been a flawless thing. Um you, she's still here, you know. Yeah, she's yeah. there's uh, can I just say there's one little exchange that you point out in yeah. your book, which is shows where you are perfectly which is one of the wittiest things i've ever heard where you introduced her at a dinner so this is my wife wonderful woman but she's lousy in bed or something and she just came straight back with i've got nothing to work with that's right she just <laughs> <laughs> oh don it's been such a pleasure having you on absolute pleasure what a man and, no, could i just say because it's been but i've been listening to your audiobook for the last few days and if, and what's a lovely thing is you talk and then you go up then you recite some of your lyrics and sometimes you can't tell because sometimes you, the way you speak is so sort of mellifluous and, and lyrical. That the it's like, oh, I, th- right. I thought that was a song. Yeah, and, and yeah, you get a couple of lines that rhyme. But also, yeah. but, but I was re- reacquainting myself because your book was nominated, quite rightly, for the Christopher Bland Prize. Um, and my missus, who's Billy was her favourite ever musical, was one of yeah. the judges. And oh, right. So she, oh, and she absolutely, yeah, her name's Georgia Bing. She's well, a writer. I have a theory about that book. So yeah. much of it was about Shirley. And I, 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 you know, when I lost Shirley, people said to me, you must work. That's the only way to get over grief. You've really got to work. So I wrote this book, um, okay, The Sailing Sky in the Royal. And I, it's obviously about all my things that I've done and everything. But half of it, at least, is about Shirley. Yeah. And therefore, half of it is about grief. And that's why I'm sure... It sold so many and it made the Sunday Times bestsellers list. I don't think it's about me that I wrote Born Free or Diamonds of Forever. It's a bit of that. But I've devoted a lot of time to telling you how hard it is to cope yeah. with grief. Uh, and I think that's what sold the book. So she was even there at the time pushing oh, my work. She's still helping you out. Still yeah. helping. God bless, mate. God bless you both. so much, Don. It was so lovely to talk Thanks, to you. Thanks, Don. Really I'll, 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 be, I'll be in touch and we should fix up a lunch. It'll be lovely to do that. All right. All the best. Oh, I've just asked before I go, Gary, you're always, are you doing any plays or any? I know you're always so busy. Uh, I, I'm not doing a play. I'm doing some filming coming up for the BBC soon. And then, I don't know, we're still probably getting back together with Nick Mason and, you know, hopefully doing some more shows this year with Guy and, and me doing, right. doing his, doing his okay. tour. Good luck with it all. Speak to you soon. Brilliant. Ah, do you know when a fella comes on our show, a guest, and says, "And John Wayne said to me." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know you're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, just those contacts in his life have been extraordinary. Yeah, because I wanted to. What's What's so interesting is, is that you, the thing of the '60s, you get certain visions of the '60s, and especially what you know with the rock and roll and everything like that and the whole psychedelia thing but there were so many branches of showbiz that were all kind of colliding and there was so much happening everywhere and there yeah. was this, you know he was on that other thread which was the more establishment one it's amazing and and also you know the british british sort of working class lad was starting to do yeah, exactly. to do well yeah. Um, thank you for listening it's been really great we'd like to thank our producer uh, Ben Jones uh, for today and um, we will see you next week we will it's good night from me and good night from them hey it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. 